Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS podcast. Today, we will be discussing a recent publication in Nutrition and Clinical Practice entitled Development of a Competency Model for Placement and Verification of Nasogastric and Nasoenteric Feeding Tubes for Hospitalized Patients with lead author and registered nurse, Dr. Jan Powers. Dr. Powers brings to our podcast 35 years experience in various roles related to critical care and trauma, primarily focused on implementation of research and evidence-based practice to improve patient outcomes. She currently serves as the Director of Nursing Research and Professional Practice at Parkview Health System, where she is accountable for advancing nursing professional practice and research development for 10 hospitals. She also holds an adjunct professor position with Indiana University School of Nursing. Dr. Powers has conducted many research studies related to nursing practice with a primary focus on improving patient outcomes through the advancement of nursing practice. Her research and efforts are related to pulmonary, trauma, pressure injuries, and nutrition. Dr. Powers is passionate about inspiring nurses to own their practice with an emphasis on the implementation of evidence-based care. She has published over 70 journal articles and book chapters and has given numerous presentations, both nationally and internationally, on a variety of critical care and nursing topics. She currently sits on the editorial board for Intensive and Critical Care Nursing, is a manuscript reviewer for several journals and has won many awards for excellence in nursing practice, including the 2010 Norma Shoemaker Award for Excellence in Critical Care Nursing from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is a fellow of critical care medicine in the American College of Critical Care Medicine and has received her BSN, MSN, and PhD from Indiana University School of Nursing in Indianapolis. Dr. Powers, thank you so much for joining us today on the DNS podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. So tell us about yourself and what led you to focus some of your professional efforts on nutrition. Um, well, I, th- I think as you said in the introduction, I have been a nurse a, a very long time. Sometimes I hate to admit how long. And my focus on nutrition started many years ago um, in the late 1990s. And, and it happened at a hospital where we were just seeing that our patients you know, weren't being fed for days on end. And a lot of it was related to feeding tube placement and how could we you know, get some enteral access in order to feed them appropriately. So there was a a physician who did some training out East and had heard of a different technique. So got a group of us together, physicians and nurses, and we started um, really looking at this to see how we could better meet the needs of our patients 
and had wonderful success with that. And really you can see the outcomes improve and we get our patients fed faster, you know, and then, I mean, this was even before a lot of the more (laughs) recent guidelines, right. But, uh, we just knew it was the right thing that we needed to do, but we had to develop a better practice. And so that's what really drove me to that. And then just seeing how we could definitely make improvements. Um, you know, it, it, it just really hardwired things for me that this was an essential need with our patients. And I was in the ICU at the time. So certainly with ICU patients. And where do you see the greatest opportunity for dietitians and nurses to join forces and collaborate to improve patient care, advance our own clinical practice, et cetera? Oh, I just think there are so many opportunities for dietitians and nurses to collaborate, to have open communication, you know, and to realize that we all want the same goal, right? We want our patients to have positive outcomes. And, you know, I think for years, um, you know, it was from a nursing perspective, it was, well, I'll wait until the dietitian sees the patient and, you know, they are absolutely the essential experts in nutrition care and nutrition practices. But then I look and it's the nurse that is, um, you know, at the bedside with the patient and they need to be advocating for nutritional support early on. They're screening for malnutrition, um, you know, and then they need to be the ones to say, Hey, we really need some nutritional intervention. What I have seen is when everybody's on the same page and advocating for nutritional support, you know, we can make a tremendous difference, you know, and there's certainly power in numbers. I think, you know, I, I always, just look at all of the ways that I've been able to collaborate with, with dietitians and physicians. And when you have, and pharmacists even as well, you know, when we're looking at a, at nutritional support overall, that we need that interdisciplinary collaboration and practice and everybody communicating, um, you know, especially now when I look at, you know, during the time of the pandemic, and I, I think it's very unfortunate that a lot of our dietitians are now working remotely, you know, so I, I see the nurse now as kind of their eyes and their ears, you know, so some of the things that they can't see in the chart and, you know, just having that ongoing open communication as to the patient's needs is absolutely essential. And what prompted you and your co-authors to write an article on developing a competency model for inserting feeding tubes? Well, this started with the ASPEN, the American um, Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, uh, had an enteral nutrition task force. And I was you know, really excited to see this because I've always had this passion for enteral nutrition with our patients. And so I had uh, put my name in to volunteer for this committee and um, thankfully was selected to be on this committee with so many other tremendous experts. And this was one of the needs that they identified. There was a previously a pediatric paper focusing on safe practices with uh, nasogastric feeding tube insertion. And so really felt like we needed a similar thing for the adults. And so was active in that uh, um, driven to help with this and help write this paper on safe, um, competency-based insertion practices for enteral access devices. So, you know, just really honored and, and humbled to be with such a great group. And, you know, and then as we were just going through the writing process, I was asked to take the, the lead on this 
product. And again, just very humbled and, and very thankful because I, I just really value the importance of this work. And I hope that as people see this paper, it really brings to light uh, not only some of the issues with feeding tube insertion, but how to really change your practice in order to have a safe practice and prevent any adverse problems with our patients. And I loved in the article how you cited that a variety of clinicians may place this type of feeding tube, and I'll quote, regardless of discipline or education, clinical competency is essential. So do you think that everyone really gets that message, or do we still have pockets of healthcare providers who don't think that clinical competency validation is necessary before they perform this type of procedure? So I, I guess in my heart of hearts, I really hope everybody gets that. And I think it's like any procedure, you know, you don't just, you know, I'm not going to decide I want to go put a central line in and I saw it, you know, so I'm going to do it um, because I'm certainly not competent to do that. Um, but, you know, and it's the same thing for this, you know, if you are putting a tube in a patient, especially a feeding tube, you know, that has the, um, possibility of causing a pneumothorax and going in the lungs and causing adverse problems with our patients, we need to make sure that every provider, um, nurse, dietitian, you know, whomever is doing this um, procedure goes, has proper training, number one, and then is able to demonstrate competency and unfortunately, I don't think everybody gets that, um, you know, which I think is so essential with this paper that we get this out and that it's read widely and certainly taken to heart, you know, and I, I think it even goes um, in, it, th there's a greater need when you're using specialized equipment as well. You know, you need to be able to understand the equipment, what you're looking at, how to determine if there's any problems. And unfortunately, I have seen situations where, you know, somebody goes and says, Oh, here's this piece of equipment, I can go use this. And I'm like, Whoa, 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 no, you can't, you know, you haven't had training, and you haven't had competency. And you know, even if you have get, been through a training session and let's say, okay, we done a, we did the, your competency checklist and um, checked you off, you know, you still have to maintain that competency as well. You know, it can't just be a one and done. You know, it certainly is a skill and it, you have to maintain that skill over time. And when you say, you know, say the words achieve and maintain clinical competency, what does that, what does that really mean? Like, what does that look like in practice? Yeah. So I, th I think that's where, you know, the, the maintain, I think is really important. So achieve, we, we really looked at this with the paper because there wasn't a lot of research on what, uh, what really shows competency. And there was uh, one article um, by Annette Borgo and looked at, I, I believe it was eight feeding tube placements. And then that showed competency with that particular piece of equipment. So that's where we kind of landed on that number, because that was the only research study that we found that really showed that. So we need, we need more research, number one, um, to, to show what this is. But when I think of competency, I think, you know, okay, you know how to use a piece of equipment, you know, cause there's, there's many different devices that you could use for placement. So you have to know how to use that. You have to know how to safely insert the tube. You have to be able to recognize for um, any adverse signs and symptoms that of your, for your patient so that you can intervene appropriately and, and 
and prevent any, any adverse outcomes of your patient. So with that, it's not just, you know, taking a test or going through a class, you know, I believe you actually have to demonstrate that and have like a return demonstration. And, you know, at my facility, you have to do six placements, you know, with a trained person, and then you have to check off with an expert person so that we can definitely say you are competent. And then um, even after that, you know, we monitor, you know, everybody's number of placements. And, you know, if I if I was trained a year ago, but I haven't placed a feeding tube, you know, in a year, then I'm probably not competent anymore. So there, that's where the maintenance comes in, right? You really have to maintain that and you have to continue to demonstrate that skill. And I think that goes with, with pretty much any clinical competency. You know, it's not just that I had initial training, but I have to be able to maintain that skill over time. And, and I think that that documentation piece in particular is really important for accreditation compliance, for regulatory compliance, like with your state department of health, that kind of thing. Um, and then in, in particular with dietitians, depending on if they have state licensure or certification that we have that documentation in place if we're performing this procedure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's switch gears now and talk staffing. Several years ago, DNSDPG had created a toolkit to assist dietitians with getting started with placing feeding tubes at their own facility. And I had the good fortune to lead that body of work. And I think the most common question that we received both before we created the toolkit and then after it was released was, what about staffing, right? Like who's going to do this procedure when the dietitian's not working? And I think that that also ties into the accreditation piece and the need to provide consistent care to all patients at all times. We know that dietitians aren't typically employed by hospitals to cover 24-7. So if a facility goes down this path, what happens when a need arises and the dietitian isn't on duty? Um, so your article did a nice job talking about staffing and the need to have sufficient coverage. But my question is, what about times of unexpected shortages, like, you know, several team members are placed on quarantine due to COVID-19 or, you know, whatever the case may be, how can we manage those types of situations? Yeah, and I, I think that is a, a great question. And especially, you know, as we are here in the midst of this pandemic, um, because we have this coming up at our facility right now. Uh, but I, I will say just to start with the staffing, you know, having availability 24 seven. And I, I don't know that that means every hour of every day, right? But you have to have somebody available within, you know, a set number of hours. You know, mostly what we see in hospitals is, you know, people staff from eight to five Monday through Friday, and then we need a feeding tube on Saturday night at you know, midnight and nobody's there. So I, th I think that's where we really have to look at that, that staffing coverage. You know, could that weekend be an on-call type of process? Um, is it something that could wait to the next morning? So we have always tried to say, you know, it's not that we just want these few hours during the day, because even though that's when most feeding tubes are placed, you know, what happens when it gets pulled out in the middle of the night or the tube gets clogged or, you know, something else happened that we need to replace that tube. 
So we don't want to necessarily wait, you know, 12 hours or an entire day to get that tube in. So I think having, you know, maybe the the majority of your staffing, you know, during those busier times, but then having, um, you know, some, if it's an on-call process, if it's just somebody available, I, I think, you know, there's different models that we look at too. So there are some facilities that have all dietitians on a tube team. There's some facilities that have all nurses on a tube team. Um, and then there's some that have a mix, right? So I, I truly believe in that mix. Um, I think everybody, uh, nurses and dietitians all bring, you know, have that, can have that skill, can demonstrate that competency. And, you know, the reality is we have more nurses right now. It doesn't seem like that in this nursing shortage, but, uh, you know, there are more nurses that are going to be available. So if you can look at staffing models that maybe incorporate multiple disciplines, you might be able to stretch those resources further. Uh, so for example, at our facility, we have a nurse who does um, every weekend. She works weekends and she helps place tubes on the weekends. So very helpful to have her there. I, I worked at a previous facility where we had pretty much every ICU nurse was trained to do feeding tubes. So it really wasn't a question of having a team and somebody available because every nurse did it. Um, and then I've, I've been in a facility where we had a group of nurses that did it and um, dietitians that said, Hey, I want to do this too. And it's like, well, sure, come on, you know, let's, let's all do it together. And then you, you have more, I guess, flexibility with that staffing model when you have more numbers and more competent people. And then, you know, I, I think certainly, um, I, I think as everybody is stretched and when you do have staffing situations that, you know, really are, are cutting back some of the people that are doing your tubes. And I think some hospitals have experienced this with the pandemic when they've had, you know, dietitians on the tube teams, and then the dietitians are told you can't go in the ICU. It's like, well, why not? You know, so I question that whole thing, but um, then who places the tubes? So that again, you know, really goes to, do we need uh, multiple disciplines? Do we need this collaboration with nurses and dietitians together to help with that? And one of the things I will tell you, we're doing at our um, facility, because we have mostly nurses that are trained, but now our nurses are stretched to, you know, their maximum capacity with just their other roles. And so we're trying to help um, facilitate saying, okay, you know, can we, we'll get all the tube feeding orders in the morning, and then we can do them during these times in the afternoon. We have clinical nurse specialists um, around that can help with some of these placements. And then in at night and weekends, we still have some off shift people that can help place tubes, but can we get the bulk of them done, you know, during these particular hours? And so just starting to kind of explore that, but I think, you know, we definitely have to be creative. Um, we have to be flexible and we have to look at what our resources are and how we can use them to the maximum ability. And aside from the staffing issue, what are other pros and cons of developing a program based on an individual placing tubes versus the team approach that you mentioned a few moments ago? Um, yeah, and I and I think we went into some of that in the the competency model. Uh, you know, pretty much just saying there are different options, right? So I think there's been a lot of success with 
tube teams or a team of specially trained clinicians, whether it's a dietitian or a nurse or a combination thereof, that those, you know, they are absolutely, you can develop um, the expertise, that skill much quicker if you are doing tube after tube after tube after tube versus when you spread this out and you have more people trained and maybe, you know, I'm only going to place three tubes a month, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to maintain that competency as much as if I was doing 30 tubes a month. So I think that's a definite advantage of having limited number of clinicians doing the tube placements, because you're going to get that skill set and you're going to be able to maintain that um, over a longer period of time. Um, you know, as we looked at, you know, training more nurses, I get concerned because we're spreading out that skill set too much. And so we have to be able to make sure that they can maintain that over time. The, uh, and of course, the con of that then is when you have a limited number, and as we had just talked, you know, if all of them now are quarantined or um, told they can't come into the ICU or, you know, and that's where we need most of our tubes then we've really just limited our resources, you know, tremendously. So there, there's got to be a balance, you know, and, and I think, you know, can we even have like some type of combination where, where we have a, you know, primary tube team and then some other people that help fill in the needs. Um, and, you know, I, th I think there's ways that hospitals can get creative and look at different models, uh, but it, it it does seem overall when, when a tube team, I, I just think that's probably, you know, a step up. Um, and I did talk about the facility that I worked at before where, where we trained every nurse in the ICU to do tubes, but um, just want to give the caveat that they had a huge um, number of tubes that they were placing because they had a protocol where every patient in the ICU on a ventilator got a tube and it was an automatic protocol. And so because there was an increased volume, we were able to maintain those that um, larger number of people maintaining competency. So when you have a smaller volume, you know, you're not going to be able to maintain that competency as well. And what advice would you give dietitians who are interested in placing tubes or starting a team at their own facility? Oh, I say just go for it. Um, I would, I would love for dietitians to, um, you know, that have an interest in placing tubes to say, hey, I want to do this. You know, I'm really interested. Can I get trained? Um, you know, because I, I think that's the number one thing is making it known, you know, that I, I want to do this. I have the skills, you know, I certainly are the experts on GI anatomy and nutrition, and there's no reason why they can't do it. There is the, the, and Christina, you could probably speak to this even better, but I know there's the credentialing aspect that need, you need to go through um, from a license standpoint. I'm pretty sure that is within the scope of practice, um, but then within that facility to get credentialed and um, you know, we ha we've had dietitians that have worked with us in the past, and that was, you know, probably the biggest barrier was just going through the credentialing. But, but I think it's more accepted now, and there's been so much information, and there's so many dietitians placing tubes now that, you know, I don't think it's going to be a, a huge barrier. But I think it's really just making it known, you know, who are placing the tubes now. If there's already a group of people that are placing tubes, you know, that that's even simpler to say, hey, I have an interest 
interest in this. And I would like to learn how to do this. And, you know, is this a possibility? I think it's going to be also time, you know, does the manager department support that because it does take some time to place the tubes, you know, and, and does that fit within the workflow? And then um, alternatively, if there's not a group of people already placing tubes or there's not a good process, you know, then I think it would be great for dietitians to step up and say, hey, you know, we've identified this need. Um, you know, we've been trying to get enteral nutrition started in our patients, but we seem to have a problem with having appropriate enteral access. So, you know, can we you know, work on a process to get this? And certainly, you know, can we get a group of dietitians or a group of dietitians and nurses that are trained to do this? So I think it really depends on what's going on with the, uh, the facility at that particular point, if there's a well-established program, if there's no program, you know, but then just making it known. I mean, I, I think it's, it's fabulous. Um, as, and I, I really love having, a a collaborative group and an interdisciplinary group of dietitians and nurses that are experts in that and have that, um, that clinical skill, because you're, you're just going to reach more patients with that. And, and I think certainly improve patient outcomes by having a intentional focus on how do we get this access in and how do we get internal nutrition started in a timely manner. Well, that's great advice. And I think you, you make a lot of really fantastic points for both dietitians and nurses who are interested in this type of procedure. And I think you're right. You know, we need to brainstorm and figure out what is it we want to accomplish with this new ask? What would it look like operationally? You know, what resources does it take, et cetera? And then what does our state license certification allow us to do in our state of practice? So then when you can put all of that together, you can then take it to administration, those in charge to help move in the right direction. Yes, definitely. So with that, I think we will conclude today's podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today and really for all that you're doing to advance nursing practice, healthcare, and nutrition. We really do appreciate the collaboration. Thank you so much. And it was truly my pleasure to be here. Listeners, if you haven't already done so, please check out the June 2021 edition of Nutrition and Clinical Practice to read more about developing a competency model for placement and verification of feeding tubes for hospitalized patients. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening. <music>